The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. The Fall of American One. The skyscraper towers of Lower Manhattan glittered in the bright winter's sun as Captain James Heist taxied his shining Boeing 707 out to the runway at New York side, a wild airport. Huge crowds had already formed beneath those very towers, for in a few hours, millions of New Yorkers would roar in admiration for astronaut John H. Glenn Jr., back from outer space and the hero of a ticker tape parade. But as those crowds cheered, throwing a snowstorm of paper down onto the first American to fly into outer space, 3,474 tons to be exact, the people of America were about to suffer a grim reminder that they could conquer space but never fate. The aircraft was named Flagship District of Columbia and was only the 12th Boeing 707 ever to be made. It was delivered to American Airlines in February 1959, so at the time America was taking its first steps into the void of outer space, it was a mere three years old. It hadn't been long out of its periodic inspection, and with less than 8,000 hours on the airframe, November 7506 Alpha was expected to have a long and productive life ahead of it, a wish that would be dashed in a few short minutes. To explain, I'm going to delve a little into sweatwing aerodynamics, and considering that this was fairly early in the average pilot's understanding of big jet designs, it was still something that wasn't necessarily second nature to many. Most of the tomes that would grace airline pilots' bookshelves, like D.P. Davies handling the big jets, were still a decade or more away. This new generation of jet airliner employed highly swept wings, which weren't required with slower, prop-driven aircraft. Jets could drive those big machines right up to the speed of sound, so high degrees of sweep were necessary to delay the drag rise that comes from compressibility effects. An effect that would occur at point 0.7 Mach on a straight wing could be delayed to over point 0.9 Mach on a swept wing. Along with the advantages came several problems with stability. A swept wing is prone to tip stalling, which can deny aileron effectiveness and move the centre of pressure forwards, causing a pitch-up, exacerbating the stall. In yaw, there's a drastic change in projected span and effective sweep, which leads to a strong rolling effect. As Davies put it, this marked role with yawing is very significant in terms of flying qualities. Another factor is oscillatory stability, termed a Dutch roll. I've mentioned this before, but it's a combination of yawing and rolling motions with a continuous reversing action in roll that can become divergent. Davies' description of how to recover from Dutch roll is a great piece of practical flying advice. I love it. The first thing you do is nothing. Repeat, nothing. Just watch the rolling motion and fix the pattern in your mind. 
Then, when you're good and ready, give one firm but gentle correction on the aileron control against the upcoming wing. Don't hold it on too long, just in and out, or you'll spoil the effect. You will be left with a residual wiggle, which you can take out in your own time. An aircraft prone to Dutch roll, with only a manual rudder, would suffer more since when winged down the weight of the rudder would deflect it into the direction of the roll, reducing the effective fin and rudder area, which makes divergence more likely. In order to counter this, and for several other reasons, designers of the 707 provided a hydraulic boost system to assist the pilot to move the rudder and your dampers to augment lateral stability and reduce Dutch roll. Both of these systems would come under suspicion when examining the fate of American 1. Let me first take you back to American Airlines Flight 514, the flagship Connecticut. American had purchased a number of Boeing 707s and put them into service in 1959, and it was eight months later when Flight 514 took off from New York's Idlewild Airport for a training flight. On board were just five crew members, a captain who was acting as an instructor with two other captains being trained, and an instructor flight engineer with a trainee flight engineer. They had taken off and completed their upper air work without incident before heading to the Grumman Aircraft Corporation field at Calverton in the afternoon in order to practice some circuit work. They completed some full-stop landings, crosswind landings and engine-out approaches and were on base for another approach, having somewhat unusually completed this circuit with the gear down. Whilst downwind, they had throttled back the two engines on the right wing in order to complete a two-engine approach. But whilst on the base leg, the aircraft was pushed over and rolled left into a turn onto finals. At this point, the 707 yawed rapidly right to as much as 17 degrees, well beyond that which can be controlled by full lateral control. The pilots failed to recognise or counter the yaw, which rapidly resulted in a roll to 90 degrees right with the right yaw causing a nose-down pitch of 30 degrees. The roll rate reached 40 degrees a second, and as the aircraft passed through the inverted position, the two idling engines were brought to full power. Descending fast, they managed to roll the doomed 707 to wings level, but they hit the ground before a recovery could be made. All five crew members perished in what was the very first crash of a Boeing 707 aircraft. The Civil Aeronautics Board concluded that during the asymmetric power approach, left rudder should have been used to counter the power from the live engines to compensate for the unbalanced thrust. With your angles of over 10 degrees, rudder effectiveness of the 707 deteriorated rapidly, resulting in a loss of directional control. Boeing advised that in this case all engines should be reduced to idle and then advanced together. The yaw induced a rapid roll that the crew failed to counter. 
As a result of this aircraft loss, the FAA decided to discontinue the requirement to make actual landings with simulated failures of both power units on one wing for training, type rating and proficiency checks. Eighteen months later, American 1502 in flagship Oklahoma also departed from Idlewild into clear skies on another training flight with six on board. Fifty-seven minutes after takeoff, they made their last radio call and eyewitnesses reported seeing the aircraft doing multiple rolls as it descended down towards Napig Beach before impacting the shallow waters there, killing all on board. What caused the crew to lose control was never fully established. The inquiries surmised that it could have resulted from practice engine shutdowns or perhaps a training manoeuvre called a canyon approach, which involved configuring the aircraft with 30 degrees of flap and gear and then flying a fast descending turn, levelling off and then climbing away again, during which the instructor would fail an engine. Regardless, American had lost their second 707. It was March the 1st, 1962, when John Glenn was preparing for his well-deserved celebration in New York, and when American 1 took off from Ida Wild bound for Los Angeles. The flagship District of Columbia was flying American's flagship route, but for the third time in three years from the very same airport, American Airlines were about to suffer another tragedy that would be the nation's worst single aircraft disaster to date. The 707 had been given a clearance to depart from runway 31 left at Idlewild, an airport we now know as JFK, and as they taxied out, they prepared for a routing that would require them to fly a 180-degree left turn immediately after takeoff to avoid the city and other airports in the area. At 10.07 in the morning, they became airborne and began a gentle left turn at 100 feet as they passed taxiway Alpha Alpha. They steaded up on a heading of 290, before switching to departure control and taking radar vectors, they started a second left turn whilst continuing to climb. As the crew rolled on the bank, it failed to stop at anything like a normal amount and within a few seconds they had passed 90 degrees of bank. Those on the stricken aircraft were the only witnesses as to exactly what happened as the roll continued until the aircraft was inverted at only 1,600 feet. Then the nose dropped, and American 1 plunged earthwards in a near-vertical dive. The crew of eight and the 87 passengers had little time to contemplate their fate before their lives were ended in the shallow waters of Pumpkin Patch Channel of Jamaica Bay, about three miles from the control tower, one minute and 49 seconds after takeoff. A brackish plume of water marked the spot, and then the debris and spilt fuel soon ignited into a huge plume of fire and smoke. 
The Mohawk Airlines aircraft that took off immediately behind were subjected to the ghastly view of the aircraft plunging into the bay. Triumph and tragedy in New York. Just an hour before the arrival of astronaut John Glenn's plane, a jetliner crashes on takeoff from a nearby airport, killing all 95 aboard. Eyewitnesses say that the giant plane had climbed to about 700 feet and had started to bank to the left when it suddenly nosed down and plunged vertically into Jamaica Bay. So great was the force of the crash that a great spout of water shot 200 feet into the sky. It was the greatest single-plane disaster in the nation's history. The crash came scant minutes after takeoff before the pilot could even report his departure time. It was a sunny, crystal-clear morning with unlimited visibility. The flight recording tape is the only hope that some answer may be found to the mysterious plunge. 300 policemen with firefighters and coast guards were mobilised to search for survivors, but in the words of one patrolman, there was no one to rescue. Their efforts gave way to recovery, with the searchers carrying ashore pitiful scraps of human possessions sodden from the dirty waters of the plane's grave. Few bodies were recovered intact. The aircraft had shattered into thousands of fragments on impact, and most lay embedded in the black mud beneath the shallow waters. At the time, President Kennedy called on the Federal Aviation Agency to do all it could to prevent a repetition. He was said to be deeply affected by the crash. The head of the FAA said that the President has instructed us to do everything within our power to prevent a recurrence. The efforts made to discover the reason for the loss of control were phenomenal and painstakingly detailed, but despite all the resources that were used, it still took ten months for the Civil Aeronautics Board to publish their findings. Even then, they were only able to discover a probable cause, but this centred around the likelihood of a rudder control system malfunction. It was believed that a fault activated the rudder boost, which caused a yaw, inducing sideslip and roll, leading to a loss of control from which recovery was not effective. The 707's flight data trace, scratched onto a strip of aluminium foil, showed that when starting the second left turn, it was performed at an angle of 22 degrees, with an airspeed of 50 to 60 knots above the stalling speed at 920 feet. At the same time, the crew were retracting the flaps from 20 to 0, which took 12 seconds, and ended at 1,350 feet and an airspeed of 200 knots. A few seconds later, several readings became erratic, which could be attributed to a left side slip, followed by an increase in G from 1 to 1.8. Airspeed and altitude recordings then dropped abruptly, indicating a pronounced side slip, and increased drag from prolonged buffeting. Impact occurred 12 seconds later. When the engines were examined, they were found to be at flight idle when the crash occurred. A large effort was put into recovering and examining the flight control components, but there was nothing to explain the aircraft's behaviour until the wiring leading to the rudder servo was disassembled 
and the protective sleeving covering the wire uncovered. The brown and orange wires were found to be severed beneath the insulation, with the blue wire hanging on by a thread. In addition, tell-tale marks were found on and around connections. The same marks were found on eight spare units in American stock, one of which still bore the manufacturer's seal. The FAA made an examination at the manufacturer's plant where a further six unsatisfactory units were found. The FAA inspectors discovered that the damage had occurred as a result of improper use of tweezers when tying the wire bundles to the motor housing. Bench tests of the damaged component investigated the result of the cut live wire making contact with the brown signal lead. It caused a yaw damper hardover. Although flight tests proved the situation recoverable with sufficient aileron applied to stop the roll at 56 degrees angle of bank. Other studies and flight tests by Boeing involved many other possible causes such as a jammed control wheel, aileron, spoiler, stall during flap retraction, engine failure, distraction, incapacitation and a myriad of others. An entire flight test program known as Project Race was ordered by the FAA and slowly all the other theories for the crash were eliminated. When human factors were considered, the ability of the project pilots to correct from a rudder boost hardover revealed that a line crew might well have acted too late to overcome the fault. To quote the report, Tests are obviously planned manoeuvres under which conditions the pilot is not confronted with the necessity of analysing the malfunction, deciding what corrective action he will take and experimenting to produce the desired results. In addition, there were several distracting influences such as the departure procedures, radio communications, flap retraction and such. The conclusion was that it was unreasonable to expect the crew of Flight 1 to have started corrective actions in time to prevent the loss of control, a conclusion borne out by several recorded instances of your damper malfunctions. The report, of course, did little to assuage the distress of those who were affected by the tragedy. The disaster occurred on a beautiful sunny morning with clear blue skies the first fair day after almost a week of rain and fog that had delayed or cancelled hundreds of flights, and on a day of celebration. As one reporter put it, as searchers poked through the shallow waters, the broken bits of the jetliner rose from the inlet in grim reminder that man may conquer space, but never circumstance. The flight number is still used by American Airlines for its daily morning departure from JFK to LAX, but nowadays it's flown by an Airbus A321. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. Plain Tales is also a standalone podcast, and you'd certainly help us out if you enjoy the show by 
leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.